All right, if you've got a Bible, can you turn to Hebrews um, chapter 5? We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Hebrews, and we'll be diving in there pretty soon. But before we get into that, let me, um, I want to just introduce one of um, our family members to you. You may uh, not recognize him, you may not mean This here is um, one of our close family members. This is Blue Hippo. Now, Blue Hippo was given, they're not, we're not very imaginative with naming in our house, just so you know. We're not. So Blue Hippo is one of our, um, our, our family members. This was given to our youngest Levi when he was a baby. You know, you get kind of given toys, people give toys to them, and Blue Hippo is one of the things that just appeared in his cot um, over that time, a gift from a friend, and it became one of the ones that Levi kind of liked, and it just, it's just gone through life. However, in our house, we don't call him Blue Hippo. Um, he's actually called Popo. Um, that's his name, and that's what he's referred to even now. He's just he's Popo, you know, and that's, just, that's what he's called. And the reason he's called Popo is when Levi was growing up and he was, trying to, he was learning to speak, and we were introducing his, kind of these animals he had in his cot to him. Obviously, Blue Hippo got introduced to him, but he couldn't say Blue Hippo. He just said Popo. That was the best he could come out with. So Popo became his name, and Popo just stuck. And even now, if you said to Levi, where's Popo? He'd know exactly who you are talking about and where you're going. And I was having a chat with him the other day, and he, get, he said he, he had Popo. He said, oh, I found Popo. And I said, do you know why you, we call him Popo? And he looked at me strangely as if like, duh, we've just always called him Popo. That's his name. And I think, well, actually, no, the reason we called him Popo is because you couldn't say Blue Hippo. So you just, Popo was the best you could come up with. And he thought this was the most hysterical thing in the world. And I, he said, what do you mean I couldn't say Blue? I said, you couldn't say Blue Hippo. You, you hadn't developed, you hadn't grown up enough to say those words. Popo was the best you could come out with. And he thought this was so funny. He made me tell me the whole story again. He thought, this is brilliant, Daddy. You tell me why it is, because he just couldn't get it. But the point is, he'd grown up to a point now where he could say Blue Hippo. He knew what it meant. He knew it. He knew what the animal is. He knows what the color is. He could understand it. He had got older. So actually, the story of calling it Popo just became, for him, really quite funny. And here's the thing. If he was still calling him Popo now and couldn't say any other words, and he was six rather than one, we would be slightly concerned because he hadn't grown up. He hadn't matured. Nothing had developed in him. But actually, he's grown up to a point now where he's going to school and he's reading and he's writing. And this just becomes an amusing anecdote I can tell him, and he thinks it's really funny. And every so often he says, Dad, tell me the story about why I call him Popo. And he thinks it's great because he's matured and grown up in it. And he's now building on what he learned before and he's got older and wiser as a result. And what we're going to look about today in the book of Hebrews is this whole idea of growing up. It's not about staying in one place. Because when children are small, it's kind of cute what they do. It's kind of cute what they say. But if they go through the years and they're still doing it and still saying it, it doesn't become cute anymore. It becomes concerning. Because they're not developing, they're not growing, they're not maturing as we think they should be. And what the author of the Hebrews is now writing to um, his listeners there, he's actually going to deal with the issue of growing up in faith and some concerns he has as a result. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to start with Hebrews chapter 5 where we left it. And we're going to go to verse 11. I'm going to read to the end of chapter 6. It should appear up here on the screen if you don't have your Bible, if you want to follow along. <clears throat> it says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who've had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God and of instructions about washing and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. For this we'll do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age have come, And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding up Him to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. (coughs) But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise of God. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. For we have... This as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, what we've got here is, if you look back to verse 10 there, he started talking about Melchizedek. We thought, oh, we're going to get into this strange character of Melchizedek. But the whole section I've just read you is an aside He's basically taking the side, and if you look at the end, he again comes back in verse 20 to Melchizedek. We're going to deal with Melchizedek next week. Okay, that's chapter 7. All right, but he's basically said, right, let me tell you about Melchizedek. Oh, no, I need to just take, make a quick digression. And then he comes back at the end to Melchizedek. So we are going to get to him, but we'll deal with Melchizedek next time. What we're going to deal here is with his digression. And his, this digression contains great encouragements, but also some severe warnings there and it uses this word about growing in spiritual maturity that you don't actually find anywhere else in the New Testament that he's going to deal with these people about what he's seen in them and what he wants to (coughs) deal with them and the first section we're going to look at is we're going to look at how to grow in faith (coughs) do you mind if you get me some water thank you we're going to be looking about growing in faith in that first section the way he starts is he starts with a sharp call to make them pay attention pay attention he says look What I'm going to tell you is hard to explain. So that's something to look forward to next week. It's going to be hard to explain, he says, since you become dull of hearing. It's basically the word there is translated sluggish later um, at the end of 
the section in chapter 6, talks about being sluggish. It's basically saying you're not paying attention, you're not listening, your hearing is not sharp, you're not, you're not grasping what I'm saying. I used to be a primary school teacher before I started working for the church, and it's classic image of children who are off task, who aren't paying attention to what you're saying. And when you've got a group of kids, it's really obvious to see the ones who aren't listening. You say, right, you've got to do this, and they're, they're, out there, you know, they're looking at this, they're poking their neighbor, they're you know, picking their nose, playing with their shoes, they're doing everything but focusing on what you're saying to them and reacting to that. And that's what he's saying to the guys here. He's saying, you're not listening, you're not getting it, you need to pay attention. Pay attention to the words I'm speaking. And the word of God for them was huge. We've seen it all through Hebrews thus far. What he said about the word of God, it's what saved them, it's what transformed them. It's what brought them to the place they are. And he says, you're not hearing it now because your hearing has become dull and you're, just, you're not there. And it's talking about <coughs> not so much the physical hear, hearing, but more that it's a, it's a moral resistance, a spiritual laziness. It's saying you're not, you're not putting in the time and effort to actually work through this. You're not growing up in what you're doing. And what he follows on to is saying, actually, you've been around so long. You've been a Christian this long, you've been part of the church this long. You should be teaching others. You should have learned something in your spiritual journey. You should mature to that point that you can now pass on what you've learned to others. And he uses this phrase, the oracles of God. You haven't learned the basic principle of the oracles of God, which is basically as a reference to the Old Testament, which they'd have had as their Bible in light of Christ, so they'd have known it, known how Jesus was all the way through that. He says, you're not being able to pass it on to anyone else. You haven't got it. And you should have grown up by that. And he uses this image of food to describe it, which we can all apply, kind of understand. And he's saying children, babies, have milk. Newborn babies, that's what they do. Whether it's from the bottle or they're from the mum, they have milk. They need that to start growing. But as they grow up, what happens? You start giving them <coughs> solid food. And that's a wonderful moment. If you've ever been around small children, the movement from kind of milk to solid food is rather a messy time, isn't it? You start weaning and you start giving them a spoon and cutting things to shove in, which they then throw up their nose, in their hair, in their ears, or throw it around, throw it around the room, goes up the wall. But that's the process. So as they become adults, all of us, we eat solid food because we've grown up, we've matured. And he's saying, that's what you should be doing. You should be growing up in maturity. And he's saying, <coughs> the comment he makes about this is it's something that happens through constant practice. It's something that they should be learning and growing at again and again and again. And if you want to learn any skill, anything that is worth learning, think about learning a new language, playing a musical instrument. It requires constant practice to learn and learn. We've got two boys, and they're learning to read at the moment. And it's something the school says to us, you need to hear them read every day. That's the kind of mantra. Hear them read every day. Do their sounds, their phonics, all those kind of things. And Ash has come home from school, and he is all over this. He comes home, and he tells me the new sound he's learned every day. And it comes with an action. Ah, 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 ba, 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 du, 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 is the drums, and all this. And he's showing it to me. And he's learning it every day and every day. And it sometimes gets a bit kind of... In the car on the way home, he's going through all his sounds. You're like, okay, all right. But it's constant practice. And then that get, builds up. Fast forward, Levi's a couple of years ahead of him. <coughs> Levi can read now, put all the sounds together, make words. You're like, wow, that's amazing. How did that happen? Constant practice. That's what the teachers are doing with them. And the TAs at school, day in, day out. And we as parents are helping that. And he says you will grow in constant, constant practice. And what does it say as a result of that? Verse 14, distinguish good from evil. 
<coughs> distinguish the ways of God from the ways of the world. If you want to grow in maturity, it's something that's going to take time. It's something that's going to take effort. It's something that is a constant thing. It's not something that just happens. Anything you want to learn and grow, and you've got to put time and energy and effort into it. And he's saying to these guys, you're not doing that. You're not doing that. And he, learned, he, he then rolls out the ABCs. What are some of the basic things that they should learn? And he lists six things there that they should kind of should know about it. And it's worth interesting just to note that he says in verse 1, um, chapter 6, he talks about us. That's always nice when a teacher does that. It's us. It's not you. It's us. We can all learn and grow. It doesn't matter where you are on your spiritual walk. You can all learn and grow. No one has arrived. No one has made it. No one's got it all sussed. And he says to them, guys, we can all do this. Us, all together. We can learn and grow. And we can take what we've learned as the basics, and then we can build on it. When you teach children letters, they're the basics, but then the letters eventually form words, which form sentences, which form whole ideas. And so you take these basics, and you build on them and build on them. And what are the six things he should know? And they're interesting, the ones he picks to write down, which basically, interestingly, take our whole spiritual life from our moment of becoming a Christian to our ultimately standing before Jesus in eternity. And he lists them out. He says, the first one, repentance from acts that lead to dead works. Oh, sorry, acts that lead to death. Sorry, dead work. Acts. And he's basically saying all the things that you tried to make yourself right with God that ultimately failed. All the things the world tries to make themselves right with God be good enough, work hard enough, be kind to our neighbors, not be a bad person. All these things or religious rituals we, we go through. If we do certain things, we go to certain places, speak to certain people, chant certain things, we will be okay. It's all rubbish. The only way you can be saved is through Christ. And you repent and we turn away from all these empty, useless, religious things and put our faith and trust in Christ. That's what he's talking about. That's what it, how it begins. And he talks about having faith in God, which is the other side of that. You repent. You put faith and trust in Jesus. That's the, the basics of our faith. Then he talks about instructions about cleansing rites and the laying on of hands. He's referring back to the Old Testament, a lot of their rituals which are now obsolete. They don't need them anymore because of Christ. He was the ultimate sacrifice. We've looked at that. He talks about the New Testament one, which is baptism, which was beautifully displayed. Was it last week? My memory's going. It was last week. Yeah, just last week. That was what it was. People became Christians and they'd said yes and we got baptized as sort of an expression of that. We love that. You've got to know about that. And then the laying on of hands. Prayer, how we pray and minister to one another. We find throughout the Bible, prayer, laying on of hands can be prayers of blessing, uh, to appoint someone to a task of leadership, lay on hands for healing. Lay on hands, it says, for receiving the Holy Spirit. Lay on hands to pray for someone. They would meet and be empowered by God. Which just incidentally, when we pray in here, and we often have people come and say, we feel God's saying, and anyone wants to respond, one of the th- key things we do is say, can we have someone come and pray with you? Why? Because the laying on of hands is a key doctrine. It's a basic thing. Let's just come and pray. We, 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 it expresses an affinity with someone. I'm with you. I'm standing by you. I'm, I'm here with you, and I'm going to pray with you. And I'm going to minister you. And God often uses that and speaks through that. And that's just one of those things that he's saying, you should just know about that. That should just be something that's there in your basic understanding of the Christian faith. And then he pushes on to two final things. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. One day, all the dead will rise, it says, and they will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And everyone's going to be judged by him. And this is part of our basic understanding of faith and then living the Christian life. And then one day we're all going to have to stand before Jesus. 
whether he comes back before that or we die before that, it's still going to happen. And then we stand before him and the only thing that matters is where, how we've reacted to him in this life, what we've done before him. And he's saying you need to know about this foundational stuff that one day all this world is heading towards one point. Everyone who's ever lived will always go to one place, which is the judgment seat of Christ. And they will be judged by how they've lived and how they've reacted towards him. He said, you need to know about this. This is basic stuff as the church. And he says, why aren't you getting this? Why haven't you got this foundation that we can then build upon that into more and more deeper, fuller things in the faith? And the question that kind of comes out this section for us is, how are you growing in your faith? What are you doing to grow in your faith? Can you actually point to it? Do you have something specific, tangible, that you can say, do you know what, at this moment I am doing this, which is causing me to grow in my love for Jesus and my faith in my walk with him? Or are you someone who's in danger, as he said, of being sluggish, of being dull of hearing, of actually saying you're, just, you're, not, you're not putting in the time and the effort, you're being spiritually lazy, there's a moral resistance to it, there's actually, no, I'm, I'm putting my time and energy into so many other things rather than actually cultivating my walk with God. Where do you stand in terms of Bible reading and prayer? I encourage you as we're going through Hebrews, maybe read along the book of Hebrews with us. Help study with it and you can kind of follow along. It's an opportunity. How are you doing with serving those around you? At the household of faith, how are you doing that? Because that's an expression of our faith in Jesus. How are you doing in telling others and moving forward in those kind of things. Can you point to specific things you're doing? I know some of you are currently on the Freedom in Christ course, which I hear is going stormingly well, and God is transforming lives, which is an outstanding way to develop our walk with Christ. It's brilliant, those who are on it. I am so thrilled to hear the stories of what God is doing. Are you connected in with our life groups and in community? Because what it says there, it says that we, are to, we can learn from one another, can't we? How do you learn from one another? Well, you've got to be around one another, haven't you? You can't learn from anyone if you're not actually around them in faith. Life groups are contests where you get to know and hang out. We had a great time uh, this week. Uh, we were there. We had a meal together. And then we took some communion, bread and wine, and we all had to share stories. We were asking, you all share stories, something that you've seen Jesus doing either in your life or around you. And we kind of went round the table and shared while we shared the communion. It was fantastic just to hear the stories. I got built up and encouraged just hearing everyone else's story and just ex- being excited and learning and what they're doing and growing in that. We have prayer meetings that we meet um, every third week. We don't meet in the life groups. We all meet together and we pray They're fantastic places to learn and grow, hear stories, to have your faith built up, to share. I know people who said to me over the years, you know, I struggle kind of with prayer. How do I pray? Those kind of things. What's the best thing to do? Get around others who pray and listen. That's one of the best ways to learn. How did I learn to pray? I hung around with people who were good at praying and I just stood there and listened to them and thought, well, they seem to know what they're doing. I'll do something like that. Prayer meetings are the best things. Prayer in life group. These are these things. So I'm challenging you now. Is there something you could literally write down on your notes on a piece of paper? I said, what are you doing now to grow in faith? Because if you're struggling, I think that's something you need to look at. Talk to someone. Grab a friend at the end and say, help me do this. Because we need to move beyond what, where we are in our faith. All right, let's move on to the next section. Holding on to faith. Now, I just need to say this up front very clearly. This next section of Hebrews is one that has raged, a debate has raged over it for centuries. 
centuries and centuries and centuries, men of God have written things down about what this passage means and where it's going. And so I'm going to cover it in like about five or ten minutes. So just, just bear with me on it, okay? Because it's not, it's not as straightforward as it is. Um, as, it, as it could be. It's one of those ones that are confusing. And there's another one in Hebrews in chapter 10 that we'll come to as well. So this isn't the only one. Every, bi- every book has its tricky bits. This is this one's. Now, what it can sound to is it's almost say- it can sound, as you read it, is it referring to the fact that someone has become a Christian and they then lost their salvation before God um, and then they will end up facing God's judgment. So someone who's repented of their sins, put their faith and trust in Jesus, been transformed from death to life, etc., etc., been forgiven. And then you read that section there from verses sort of 4 to 8 and think, oh my goodness, what happens to that individual? Well, I just want to put this out there. I do not believe that is what it's saying. The reason I don't believe that's what it's saying, because if you read the other parts of the Bible, when you have unclear parts of Scripture, you go to the clear parts and use that to help interpret the unclear parts. The Bible has lots to say about the eternal security of the believer. Let's read some out. Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? That's good. John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. Ephesians 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The bottom line is, I think if someone has become a Christian and they've been truly born again uh, in faith, and they've been moved from death to life, that they cannot use, lose their salvation. I think that's what the Bible teaches. I believe that. Um, but I think when we're studying this passage, something interesting happens in the tone of voice of, the, re- of the, the author that we just need to bear in mind. First of all, those first few sections, he talks about we and us. If you go to verse 9, he also talks about we and us. In this section, he talks about those and who. He's talking about other people. He's not talking about the believing church, people who are going through it. He's talking about others. And he's trying to deal with this issue of men and women who have fallen away from the faith in the face of prosec- uh, persecution and what's been going on in their lives, um, because we know that the readers, um, of he- writers, readers of Hebrews were under great persecution, and they've committed uh, apostasy in turn of turning away from Christ, rejecting him, and what does all that mean? So what is he referring to? If he's not referring to the loss of believers, one of the impossible ta- um, interpretations that I'd, I like to go with is actually he's not referring to the loss of salvation, but the loss of rewards for those people. Jesus says very clearly that we are to store up treasures in heaven, we're to basically our acts on earth work out in heaven with how we give, how we give our money, our time, our energy actually has rewards in heaven. He actually seeks, tells us to seek that and look after that, go for that, use that and be obedient in our, in our, um, in our faith. Um, and what he's saying to those of the Hebrews, there are those who have rejected the faith, walked away from it and they will lose their rewards. It talks about it being burnt up. Um, in the fields, um, and, it being, and there's an image in Corinthians about things being, our, our works being tested by fire, and stuff of hay, stubble, and straw will be burnt away, and those only stuff of gold will be left behind. And it's actually talking about people who need to actually um, work on their rewards for heaven because they're in danger of losing it all. 
maybe being saved, but that effectively being the end of it. And the point of the warning, the point of the, 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 the poke that the readers, the writers giving to us is not that we would be un, uh, afraid, but it would make us uncomfortable. It has to make us uncomfortable because we're dealing with very serious issues here. It's not a game, our walk with Jesus. It's not a game, Christianity. It's not just one of those hobbies that we take up while it suits us. It's literally life and death, eternal life and eternal death that we are facing. And we need to take it extremely seriously on how we act. And those in the church need to take it extremely seriously, even in the face of great persecution, loss of property, even the loss of life. He's saying, actually, do not... Do not just reject that. You don't just get to walk away from Jesus once he's saved you and he's done that to you. There is real loss coming for you. So he says, heed the warning. Take it seriously. And for us, this presents a real pastoral issue. I don't know how long you've been in church, how long you've been around Christianity, but if you've been around any length of time, you will know people, I can list them in my life, who were vigorous Christians going after God, loving the Lord, but are now nowhere. I don't know if you know people like that. Friends, family members, loved ones, people you think, what on earth happened there? And in light of severe warnings, how do we respond to them? What do we do with those kind of people who think they were here? They were part of us. They were part of our, our small group. They were part of our youth work. They were part of our church. They were, they, were like, they were passionate, and now they just seem to be off rejecting, walking away. What do we do with them? Well, those kind of people fall into three categories. They are those, they were maybe never true Christians in the first place. That's a possibility. Maybe they were just copying what everyone else did and just going through it, enjoying it for what it was, and they were never actually Christians. Maybe they are those who've gone astray and eventually will be re-restored to relationship. Maybe prodigal son went away. He came back, there was great rejoicing. The father welcomed him back, loved him. He came back, he repented. It was um, incredible. Maybe they've gone away and they'll never be restored in this life. They will die away from the Lord and actually they'll lose their reward in heaven but still make it, so to speak. The critical point, wherever they are, wherever they fit, (laughs) we don't know. We don't know, do we? We can't see what their spiritual state is before God, which means we can treat them all the same which means we can show unfailing love towards them. We can seek to pray for them, to see them restored to God, to his church, that we can go out of our way to serve them and care for them. We can warn them straight their eye of the folly of their actions. And you say, what you're doing is going to ultimately end in a bad place for you, and you need to repent and come back to God. And we can do that with great sincerity and great integrity, And say, come back, come back, come back, because we have a loving Father who wants to know you, who wants to see you restored to him. And whatever the situation is, whatever the person, we can be be praying and loving them. And what does it mean for us here now, if you're listening to this? Heed the warning. Take it seriously. Read that passage over and over again. If it doesn't make you uncomfortable, read it again until it does. It should We like to think of God as nice and fluffy and light, but there's sometimes when he's stern and severe and he needs to be. Any father, any parent would be that. You're loving to your kids, but there's times when you just say, no, because you're in danger. I remember the boys when he was um, putting his hand, we um, had some friends last night and we were coasting marshmallows over the fire and fireworks were going off. It was awesome. Um, But I remember one of the first times we did it and the boys almost put his hand on the fire pit. 
And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't, there was no fluffiness in me there. <laughs> Get your hand away from that now! And he did it. And you're thinking, I did it because what would happen would hurt you. And so you have to be sharp. There's, no, there's not time to be anything else. And there's times when God has to be like that with us. And there's times we might need, we need to be like that with one another. And actually, what you're doing is going to damage you. You need to stop. And the motivation for me being like that is because I love you and I want good for you. If I didn't care for you, I'd say, put your hand in it, burn it. And laugh at the consequences, which would just be sadistic, wouldn't it? We don't do that. We love, and so we have to be like that. And so for us, we need to heed the warning. We need to be serious about what God is saying to us. And some of you in your life, maybe right now, there's things that you're dealing with that actually God is saying, stop it now. Because it's severe and what's going to happen is going to damage you. It's going to damage you and it's going to have great consequences in your life. So heed the warning. And for those we know who've left the church along the way, we are to just love them, pray for them, cry over them, encourage them, warn them, beg them to return to God because we know ultimately that is the best thing for them. Last one, the hope of our faith. If you go to verse 9, the tone changes totally. What does he say? He says, yet in your case, beloved. He's now talking about the people he knows. He's talking about the church. And he uses this phrase, beloved, dear friends. I think some translations use. It's a term of endearment where the, the author is now talking about Christ's community that he knows. And he's basically seeking to reassure them. And he says to them, despite that, feel, that warning, he says, we feel sure of better things for you. He's seen them. He knows their faith. And he's saying there is better things ahead for you, church. Better things ahead for you, and I feel sure of that. Things that belong to salvation, the good works that's done in you. And he he enlists a few things for them. He says his confidence in them and the confidence in them, what God's going to do them, is based on a few things. He says he knows their work of the past. He says, I, I know what you've been doing. I know how you've been serving the saints, literally the other members of the church, of the household of God. And you've been doing it in his name, he uses this phrase, in his name. You've been faithful servants who have served up the other believers so well. And I know of your works. I know how good you've been of that. And you've been motivated to do that. And you've been earnest in that. And you've been diligent in that. And that's a wonderful thing. And as I was reading this, one thing I really felt that I need to say to you guys as a church is I see this in you. I really do. I know you faithfully serve the church. I've seen it time and time and time again. I know of your good works. Being the pastor, I, seem to, I just kind of, I'm the head of lots of tributaries of rivers, so I get information comes to me about things that are going on. And I know how you serve one another. I know how you bless one another. I know how you give to one another so many things. I know there's meals that fly around from people serving one another, practical helps, even financial helps in times of difficulty. I know you do this, and I want to encourage you that you are that church. When he's talking about them, the beloved and those who serve one, that's you he's talking about. I'm not here to bash you and say you're doing a bad job. You're doing an excellent job. The only thing I could say as your pastor is, don't stop. <laughs> don't stop. Keep going. You're doing a fantastic job. You even, it's not just even the household of faith you love, which we're told to have a special love for, but actually those outside. This here, which is our food bank, which doesn't go to us, goes somewhere else. That was one text we sent on, when we sent it? Yesterday. And that appeared. Wow. That's amazing. 
You guys are awesome at serving and loving people, and I'm thrilled to be your leader in that sense. So you are amazing. So when I read that, I just thought, I need to tell you to do that. And the encouragement there is actually don't be sluggish. (laughs) Keep going. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Just keep serving, keep loving Jesus. You are doing an amazing job. And he points at the end to the hope of our faith. He says, we should be like, we should imitate those who've gone before us. And the one he picks is a guy called Abraham. Abraham, we have to go right back to Genesis at the beginning of our Bible. And he's one of the imitators of faith that we should be like. And Abraham, if you know the story of Abraham, it's quite a crazy one because he was a very old man. And God came to him and said, well, I'm going to change your name from Abraham, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of many. And he had no kids. I mean, it's like some sick joke. God said, do you know what? I'm going to do that. But do you know what? I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the skies. There's going to be so many of them. But what happened? There was many years between God saying that to it actually happening. And so he had to persevere in faith for, his, for his, the promise to be kind of received. And he had a wife called Sarah who was lovely, but she had a problem. She was barren, it says. She couldn't even have kids. Oh, my goodness, how are we going to have lots of children? If you, we can't even have, you can't have kids, and I'm old and decrepit. But they persevered in the promise, and then they had the, the promised son, Isaac, who came along, and if you follow the story through Genesis, God fulfills his word. They become a great and mighty nation. But it says Abraham persevered in the promise. He held on to it. He kept going. He didn't, he didn't give up. He looked forward because he had a certain hope in God. And it says in the passage there were two things that God brought before Abraham to prove that the promise would be true, that he could put his hope and trust in two unchangeable things. The first one was his character. It, said, it says, when they swore an oath, you swore by someone higher than you. So if we were going to swear an oath, that's the way they did it in the culture there. You swore by someone higher than you that if you didn't fulfill the oath, some bad stuff would happen to you. And so they would swear by God that if I didn't fulfill my part of this bargain, that this would happen to me. And they'd pronounce curses on themselves and things like that. But God, when God pronounces an oath, he can't. There's no one higher. So he pronounced it by himself. He said, by, my, by his own name, he will keep this promise. And then it says later that God, is, it's impossible for God to lie. It's inconsistent with his character. What he speaks will come to pass. So by these two things, this promise would come about. And in verse 19, it says, We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Our hope as Christians is based on something unchangeable and solid. The work of Christ. This unchangeable thing. This amazing thing that's happened. And it uses this imagery at the end where... um, that it's gone through, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, the hope that enters behind the inner place, behind the curtain. The reference there is to the, um, the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem, where it had the innermost place, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant dwelled, where God's presence was. And he said there is, a, there is a hope that has gone through there, reference to Christ, saying he has gone into that place, the very presence of God, and that is where our anchor is in God's presence, with Jesus, for in his work, his perfect sacrifice, his perfect death that we've seen about in Hebrews where he rose from the death victorious. He's given us new life. We now have freedom in him. We don't have to pay the punishment for our sin because he's taken it. And that is what we're looking for. And that is what Abraham had his hope in. And he said he patiently waited to obtain the promise. And we too have our hope in that. We have our hope in this incredible thing that cannot come to pass, oh, sorry, cannot, will not 
fail. It will come to pass. And we often get mixed up on this because um, we, we put worldly hope on biblical hope and they're very different. I was watching uh, with my dad yesterday looking at some of the football scores coming in. As you do on a Saturday afternoon, we're following them. And hope sometimes arises in them. Because one of my dad's, um, dad's uh, one of our family teams is Sunderland. Yeah, I know. Um, but they won yesterday, didn't they, for the first time. They, for the first time this season, which is really bad. And there was, almost there was a sense of hope. Are they going to survive relegation? Hope in me rose. Well, maybe if they won one game, having lost like 11 in a row, hope would arise. And you think, are you... They're rubbish. They're going down. It's just, it's just it's, what do I do? Hope. You know, it's ridiculous, this hope. And actually, but biblical hope isn't like worldly hope where you just kind of, maybe it will happen. For Christmas, I hope I get the new iPad or something like that. You know, it's this hope. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I, was that, I just picked that out. That's not happening. I don't want it anyway. That's not the point. You get where I'm going. Sometimes we have this hope, which is just ridiculous. I know. Are, this, are my team going to avoid the drop? Is this going to happen? But biblical hope is of a totally different order. Biblical hope is 100% certain. Our earthly hope almost makes a mockery of that four-letter word. Biblical hope is not a hope as in will it happen. It's going to happen. It has happened in this sense because Christ has gone through the curtain. He's made the ways open. Our hope is steadfast and sure, and we can hold on to that. And we're told to imitate Abraham in that way. He patiently waited for that. He didn't see everything, and we're in that same place. God may have spoken things to you in your life that you're patiently waiting for, and we're told to keep going in that. Even the ultimate goal of our faith, we all have to patiently wait for because we don't see him face to face, which we one day will when this earth has passed away and the old has gone and the new has come. And we stand in the new heavens and we see Christ face to face and we will worship him forever and spend forever working, looking at the whole kind of new creation and enjoying those great works that he's done for us. We have that, but we are to patiently endure. And so when <coughs> you get the warnings that come before and the fact that some people have fallen away from the faith, we're then to look at that and say, keep going, church. Keep doing it. Keep spurring one another on. Hold on together. Be in community where we're learning from one another and not giving up. And we're growing in our faith and maturing it and we're being active about that. And we're not just putting it out as a low priority. That becomes number one priority in our life. How do we grow in our faith? How do we become more like Jesus day by day? And the question kind of just to leave us with as we finish is where is your hope? Where are you putting your hope right now? Think about it. People put their hope in so many things. Even as believers, sometimes our, kind of our, we get off course. Yeah. It's like magnets kind of can throw a compass off. You put a magnet by a compass, it doesn't point to true north anymore. It points off and our direction can go. If things come into our life and pull off the direction, we're not going in the right direction. Things like career and family and money and possessions and just hobbies and life and stuff, none of them are bad. They are if they become God things. And they take God's place, so we need to put them in the right place, which is just good things to enjoy, gifts from Him. But my question is, where's your hope? Where's your focus? We're going to spend some time worshipping now, and use this as an opportunity to get the compass of your life back on Christ today, that sorts you out for the week. I love that as a church, we meet on the first day of the week. Often the world thinks Monday's the first day of the week, because that's when the working week begins. But actually, the first day of the week Sunday. 
and we come together, the first thing on the first day of the week is to come together, worship with God's people and put our eyes on Jesus. It sets us up for the next seven. And so when we come back to Sunday next week, new day, new week, let's go, put our eyes on Jesus to begin with. So should we do that? Do you want to stand? I'm going to pray. Can the band come back? And we're going to put some time, spend some time worshipping Jesus. <coughs> Thank you. Maybe you just want to close your eyes. Just reflect on maybe what God said to you over the last you know, half hour or so. Are there some things you know you need to just put right with him? Maybe there's some, some warnings you need to hear, some encouragements you need to hear to keep going. There's some things you need to say to him. Maybe you just take a moment to say to him. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you are our one true hope. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have that anchor for the soul. Like those big ship's anchors that weigh a ton that can hold a ship a hundred, a thousand times its size in place just by waiting on the bottom of the ocean. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for that. No matter what we're facing in life, whatever trials are coming, whatever wind is blowing, whatever the waves are crashing, you will hold us in place. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that, Lord. And we recognize, God, we have our own responsibility in this, Lord. Lord, we want to hear the, the warnings. We want to say, God, we want to grow in faith. We want to move forward in you. We don't want to be off course chasing after things that ultimately won't last want to have our eyes on you. Lord Jesus, we pray you give us grace today to walk forward in you. Holy Spirit, come fill each of us now that we may love you, we may serve you, that we may put our trust and hope completely in you.